Hey everyone, welcome to Battleground Podcast. Today we have an absolutely incredible guest. His name is Nick Friedas. He's an Army combat veteran. He's a Special Forces Green Beret. He's an operator, as they're called. Uh, we have that in common. Nick and I both ran for Congress back in 2020. We met, we became friends. Um, and since then, I mean, he's just built this incredible platform on YouTube. He's got an amazing podcast. Um, hundreds of thousands of, su- of subscribers. And he's really, frankly, he's a conservative thought leader. And I'm so excited to have him. Nick, welcome to the podcast. I am so grateful for your time. How you doing? Oh, doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> You're welcome. We were, we were just you know, in the lobby or in the studio solving some of the problems of the world. And I was saying uh, to Andrew, my producer, before you logged on that your podcast, first of all, your studio looks fantastic, but I love the format and your shorts. I'm blown away by, you know, your ability to reach people through your shorts. I mean, you're like, you're a serious YouTube influencer, which is a term I think is vastly overused. And I I generally speaking, don't like it, but, but I do think that what you're doing has an impact, especially on the next generation who, who are those, those kids are going to shape the future of this country. So I think it's really important. No, it's, you know, we, we kind of made a decision a while back. I mean, we, we initially started doing kind of the podcast and doing, doing more uh, stuff on Social media and a lot of it was related to uh, like floor speeches or uh, campaign stops or things like that. And um, we kind of made the conscious decision that we wanted to talk about things on more of a, a cultural level. We didn't we didn't want to make it all politics. Um, now, so we, we we have a lot of political philosophy in there, but a lot of what we talk about is just simple stuff. You know, being a being a veteran, being a dad, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and some of it's just kind of common sense, you know, poking fun at ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we homeschool. So we've talked about that. I've talked a little bit about, uh, homesteading. I want to call myself a homesteader mainly because <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself that much credit right now, but, uh, we, we've certainly been doing more and more with it. And I think what we found is that one of the problem with people that get involved in social media through politics is they think it's all just an extension of their campaign. And nobody wants to so hear that true. crap, right? Like that's Twitter, so that's true. Facebook. So if we, um, so we, we just started talking about kind of regular things uh, from a perspective that, you know, it's things that you and I have talked about before and, um, and I, it, it seems to be resonating and that that's pretty encouraging. Well, what's your secret? Because before, before we went live here, um, I was like, I don't think that I could generate those little tidbits of wisdom on and these YouTube shorts that you do, um, and and do it on a consistent basis. You know, um, how how do you how do you shape what content you put out there and decide what to use? So some of it, I mean, honestly, I, I wish I could say we had some sort of like grand long term strategy where we've talked <laughs> about so that it, usually it's more like waking up in the morning, getting my coffee, and and either I was thinking about something the night before, or thinking about something that day, or I had some interaction with you know my family or. Or something. I, I will tell you this: <laughs> the, the moment you think there's nothing to opine on or or talk about or consider, just just turn on the news, and there's always <laughs> going to be there's there's a never ending stream of stuff that either needs to be mocked or explained. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we we try to do we try to do like once a day. That's kind of our thing, like once a day. But really, if you can if you can make a good if you can make what is like you know meaningful or funny or something form of content. Uh, and you can put it out on, on various platforms and whatnot. But I think, I think if like, for instance, I mean, you, you have some incredible experiences with respect to your, your military service, uh, running for office. Uh, I mean, being an author, I mean, there, there's so many things in there where, and not to mention like all the political stuff, right? Like, like put that aside for just a second. Um, there's so many things that you might've, you might've learned for that or funny stories or, or things like that, that people would be interested in. Um, to get just a little bit of insight into something that maybe they've never experienced before. Like I, I talked about the, this is probably something you can relate to as well. I talked about the first job I had, um, leaving the military and, and kind of like the transition into civilian life. And this, like this funny little episode I got into where, you know, I, I 
I what I said was I told the guy like, hey, I, I wouldn't mind doing that thing if you really want me to, but I think there might be a better way to execute it. I said what I actually said was that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life, and the only way I'm doing it is if you put it in an email because I don't want anyone blaming me for this stupid crap. You know, you you, you put that out right and. There's going to be a ton of people that are veterans that completely relate to it, or completely. there's going to be other people that just think it's funny. And so I, that's why I tell people, it's like people got a lot more to offer than they, than they think they do. Um, it just sometimes takes a, a little bit of while of, of thinking about it. Like, okay, how can I say this in a way that's going to grab someone's attention, maybe be funny, but at the end, they're going to get something from it. One of the biggest, one of the biggest things you need to do, like with, with any transaction, and you've run businesses, you know this. Um, what, what is the value proposition? You know, someone you're asking for someone to give you their attention for even if it's just for 50 seconds. You know, what do they get out of it? And um, and so thinking about things in such a way to where you could package those experiences in a way that's meaningful or funny or or provide some sort of insight. Um, and, and again, a lot of what we do is not telling people you should do this. It's more like, Hey, this is my experience. This is, this is what this happened to me. This is how I reacted. This is what I learned from it. And, and I don't know, people seem to like it. You know, you know how I first stumbled across these videos. Cause again, like you and I met, I met you on the campaign trail, your special forces guy, like army guy. That's, that's how I knew you. Yeah. And I stumbled on one of your shorts on YouTube. And by the way, I don't know why the hell I was on there. Like I, I, <laughs> I never really got into you. Like I had a staff that managed all that. Like, and now that, now that I'm doing the podcast and stuff, I'm more involved in that side of things. But, but I stumbled on a video. You talk about, you know, what's the value proposition and so much of, of what my life life has become is muddling through try to ha- trying to be a father to five kids and it's it's not it's, you know we're a blended family um um you know i've got kids you know 16 year old stepdaughter or I, she's my daughter i mean 16 14 year old son two 12 year old daughters and a 10 year old son but it was you had some video out there about daughters and dating and stuff like that and and in that that's you talk about a value proposition man that spoke to me because my daughter now i mean she's dating and and i don't i mean i i have to tell you nick i i struggle with it and i and i often reflect on it and i think about why i do um i can't quite put my finger on it but your videos help me Say so at least at least at a at a bare minimum. Uh, hey, I ain't the only one going through this. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no there's no there's no field manual for how to raise kids. Yeah. You know, no, yeah, we we had um we had a video on uh, I I think the the one that really went viral for us on, on a short was three things I learned raising daughters. Yeah, um, and and it was just talking about you know it, it started off because <laughs> when it, when I had a little girl, I asked my wife, you know, okay, how do I be a good dad? And then I asked the biggest man whore I met in the military, like, how do I protect her from you, dude? Like, this is, I mean, straight up, buddy to buddy, operator to operator. What the heck do you say uh, so I can prepare her to like say no to you? And, um, and, and you know, and he looked at me and, and it was it was weird because it was kind of one of those things where I was quasi making a joke, but I was also serious. And he got real quiet and looked at me, and goes, tell your daughter you love her, because if you don't, you know, basically someone like me will and they'll believe him. And God. that hit me, man, like uh, that, that hit me. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, obviously it's not enough to just say that I, I love my daughter. It's, it's important that I, you know, demonstrate that with spending time with her and protecting her and everything else, but I better verbalize it as well. Um, and, and it, cause a lot of times stuff like that will happen. I'll go and I'll talk to my wife. I'm like, you know, explain to me what this is like from your perspective as a woman. And she's like, you know, look, I, I love all the things that you do to provide and help and protect our family and the whole deal. And I appreciate all of it, but yeah, like that's great. But if you don't say, if you don't verbalize, I love you to your, your daughter, you, you can't expect them to automatically believe that, Oh, oh of course he's, he's working this hard because he loves me. Of course he does these things because he's, he loves him. She, she also needs to hear it. And that was, I found that to be an incredibly useful piece of advice because my, my oldest daughter's 20. She just got engaged. Um, my youngest daughter's 15. And so I'm, 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 I'm right there, you know, with you on kind of those. It feels like a, a it feels like a minefield for fathers, especially it today. It does. 
It does. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I is it hard for you? I mean, I, I'm surely it, did, it doesn't sound like and I'm not trying to speak for you, but it doesn't sound like it came natural to you to say, hey, listen, kiddo, I love you. You know, just want and I'm doing this because here's here's the reason why I might be a little crazier. It seems like I'm a little crazy in this regard with with dating. But this is what I'm thinking. This is where I'm coming from. And ultimately, I love you, kiddo, and I want to protect you. And that's that's my yeah. job. And when you're out there dating, you almost as as a father, you know, you take that and you outsource that protection it's still my responsibility it's still my job but if they're out there together it's like at some point she's gonna have to protect herself and you know he he obviously cares for her so it's it's very very complicated it's a tough journey for fathers so how did it obviously it sound like talking to your to your wife is is so important and it's it's so important for me too but how did how do you how did you have that epiphany? Because you and I are both knuckle draggers, man. Like I'm an infantry guy <laughs> right? and like, we don't always have, we don't always have, <laughs> we're not always the best at expressing our emotions. Like typically sad, sad. And it's just ang- ang- sad is angry, you yeah. know, for me. Like, yeah. so it's like, it's difficult. We have, we have for me happy to and angry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah frustrated, confused, sad, just depressed. <laughs> that's all anger. And then yes. we have happy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think, uh, I mean, uh, look, I, I'll give my, my parents got divorced when I was three, um, but I, I still had a, a great relationship with both my folks. Now, I, I had to go. I had to go down. And I spent the summers with my dad um, and the school years with my mom and then, you know, holidays and stuff like that. But um, both of them, I think, were both of them were good about, um, you know, spending time when they could. They're both incredibly busy. Right. They're working hard. My dad was a homicide detective. My mom was a nurse. Um, they were also good, I think, at verbalizing, saying, I, I love you, like not all the time, but they, they, they did it. Um, so I, I think part of it was, um, you know, part of it was, was my faith, right? And just understanding that, you know, there, there's certain responsibilities that I have as a father, uh, that are, that are biblical and are just there and that I'm, I'm responsible for. And then part of it too was, was having those conversations with, with my wife and, um, you know, talking about what she experienced growing up, what she would have liked to have experienced more of. I think one of the biggest things that struck me when my oldest daughter was like 11 or 12, it was the first time a boy kind of liked her. Mm-hmm. And we, we had set up kind of, we, I mean, we're probably pretty draconian compared to most parents. Like we told our kids, like, look, <laughs> dating is about getting married. And if you're not ready to get married, you're not ready to date. And so you, you need to, you need to hold that off. But I remember the first time, um, my, Oldest daughter was like 11 years old. She had a boy at school that liked her. And this is, we, we actually ended up homeschooling, but <laughs> not to avoid the boy, but, um, and I, <laughs> maybe a little bit, maybe. A yeah. Little bit. And I remember she, she told her mother first and, and her, and her mom was like, you, you need to go, you need to go talk to your dad. And so she came over and she kind of told me the whole deal. And, and I remember saying, I'm like, I said, sweetheart, I want to explain something to you. I said, it is perfectly natural for you to be feeling like butterflies right now, for you to be feeling, you know, kind of happy and excited and like all of those emotions, because this boy has expressed that, you know, he prefers you over all the other girls. Um, and that, and I said, you know what, sweetheart, that shows great judgment on his behalf, right? That shows great judgment that, that he picked you because you are, you are incredible. I said, but you know, sweetheart, I, I want you to understand that the reason why we set up the boundaries that we do is because I want you to have the marriage that your mommy and I have. Um, and one day I, I totally believe God's going to bring that guy for you that you are just going to be in love with. I mean, he's just going to be a great guy. He's going to be what you're looking for in life. And and you are just going to want to spend the rest of your life with him. And, and one of the reasons why we protect you so much is because when you when you find yourself in that moment, I don't want you to have to explain a whole lot of stuff that came before you met him. Right. I, I want you to think how much, how much will I have to explain to this person about what I did, who I did it with and everything before mm-hmm. I get to that person. And it's not because you, you can't, I mean, look, stuff happens, right? Stuff happens and right. people have great marriages. They get through all that. Um, but what I found was, is that the mindset I was trying to work with my girls very, very early on was that daddy does not believe daddy's I am not someone that like wants to scare off all your boyfriends and never want you to get married. And you're my little girl and, and that's it. No, I want you to, I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want to be a grandpa. I, I want to do all those things. I want you to have an incredible marriage. Um, 
I, I want you to have what me and your mother have. Like, I want you to have all of those things. And, and I want you to trust that I do want that for you. And so as, as time goes on, um, if I ever say, sweetheart, I don't think he's the one, I want you to trust that my only motivation is because there is one and this guy ain't it. Um, and what I, what I found was is that when my, you know, when my oldest daughter got older and, and she, now she is old enough to date and she has a boyfriend and he was very respectful. He was a good guy. She maintained very, very strict boundaries with him. And she kind of came to the conclusion one day that she was, I just don't know if this is going to work out. And, and I was the one she was talking to about it. I was the one that she was, well, daddy, what about this? What do you think about this? Well, you know, Hey, what, what about this? Or for the future, you know, I think his, our goals and you know, what we believe might not line up as much as I would like. And, and, um, and, and I remember just sitting there talking her out with her and, okay, yeah, I think this is good. I think you've used good reasoning here. And, uh, and they ended up breaking up, remain friends. And, um, but I, I think the work for that, um, if at all possible, the work for that starts younger. Uh, it starts with establishing that trust to where they, they know their daddy loves them. Absolutely. 100% know their daddy loves them. Um, they also know that daddy will tell them the truth. He'll do it in love, but he'll tell them the truth because let's face it. You look at everything kids are going through right now and the mountain of crap they're being fed about the world and not just so politically, true. but ideologically, identity wise, everything they're being fed so much disinformation about the world right now and their role in it and who they are. They need to know that there is somebody that they can go to that is going to give them the truth, even the hard truth at time, but they don't mind receiving it because they know it's from somebody that is entirely on their side, like their biggest fan. And and then the other thing is, is they, they got to be, um, they got to know that when they need to tell you something, you're not going to flip out. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to flip out. And, and I, I think that I, I, I tried to, I tried to do that for my girls and there was times where I think I nailed it and there was times where I totally failed. <laughs> um, but I, I know that, I mean, one of the, one of the greatest, one of the greatest experiences for me in my life thus far was when my daughter's fiance, who I really like, great dude, great dude, sort of guy you pray will come along to, you know, and, um, he came in and he came and asked my permission. Like that's the thing they're not supposed to do anymore, right? You're not supposed to. Right. You can ask for a blessing. Not no. He came and he asked for my permission, and that's he not, that's did. What right looks like that's what right he, looks like. But here's the important part. He didn't just do that because he knew it was the right thing to do. He did it because my daughter would have asked him if he had once he asked her to marry him, and and that's the sort of relationship I, I want to have with my girls. I want them to know that. Um, Look, no matter what happens, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to, I'm going to give you advice based off of what I think is best for you. But man, I, I am, I am on your side. Like you cannot even, you cannot even imagine my life for yours, sweetheart, my life for yours. It sounds like so much of it. I mean, obviously, you know, you said sometimes you got it right. Sometimes you didn't. Um, and I feel like that often. Do you think that it, it's. I mean, I, I, I tend to think this, but is it just about showing them that you love them and that you're trying and, and that trust that's established there uh, builds the sort of relationship where they feel like they can come to you and talk to you about these, you know, what what are personal issues? Because I, I agree mm-hmm. with you, Nick. I think that's so important. You know, kids come home from school. They had a rough day. You ask them what's wrong. Sometimes they tell you, sometimes they shut down, you know, I'm fine. I'm good. Nothing happened. Um, in those moments, because I'm sure that you've had them, mm-hmm. are you persistent or do you give them some time to breathe or do you check in, you know, after they've had time to breathe, do you check in with them later? What's your rules of engagement on that? I think it, I, I think it kind of depends. It, so obviously you, you'll have times when your kids are, are there and they're, they're angry and they're mad about something. You can tell the times where they're just uh, sad. You can tell the times where they're, they're, um, they're hurt. And, um, w- what I try to do is make sure that I'm, I'm aware enough of what's going on because you know, the deal, you can get so focused on something that your situational awareness goes, goes out the Completely. window. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I try to be situation aware. Sometimes my wife has got to be like, Hey, you need to go. This is another thing that's so important about that relationship, right? Is when, when you're, when you have a wife that will tell you, Hey babe, they need to talk to you about this. So they really need to, they'll give you a heads up sometimes. Um, but I, but I think, 
being aware of it and, and engage like actively engaging. Hey, are you okay? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. No, no, seriously. Are like, are, are you okay? And so I, I think a little bit of persistence. Now, if they, if they really don't want to talk right now, they just got to figure it out or, or whatnot. I, I think it's, I think it's fine to say, okay, but if, if you need to, I'm, I'm right here. I'll, I'm, I'm here for you. Um, again, I, I can't emphasize enough how much I think a lot of this starts early on because when, when your kids are little, they automatically come to you, right? Like it's, it's like a regular thing. Um, you, you, you are their source to the outside world. Um, and, and so I, I think when you establish that pattern early on where they know they can come and talk to you and that you're going to hear them, uh, that you're really going to sit there and listen and not just immediately start to give advice. That That's the other big lesson I've learned is, you know, I, I don't, but before I can give advice, I got to understand again, I'll go back to the military, right? Understand your operational environment. How many times did we have that hammered into us overseas? Know your operational environment, know your operational environment. Same thing with kids. All right. When, when, when your daughter is sitting there and she wants to talk to you about something, especially your, your daughters, they don't necessarily want you to fix something right off the bat. They may want you to, but they first want to feel like you really understand the problem the way they understand the problem. You understand it from their perspective as much as possible. And then a lot of times it's helpful to ask questions instead of if we, if we go in right with advice, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. They don't feel like you've actually gone through the process with them of understanding the problem first. And so they don't trust the advice as much. Hmm. But when you, when you've gone through and you've asked important questions, well, what about this? Oh, okay. Well, did, did he say this? What did you say to that? Okay, what? So, what were you thinking when that when that took place? Then, after a while, they think like, okay, we're engaged, we're in this together, we're we're like we're investigating, right? We're investigating this, mm-hmm. and and we're going to get to the conclusion together. It's not my dad going to tell me like, okay, you had to do this, or you should have done this, or why didn't you do this, or you remember when I told you? It, it, it's none of that. Um, so, I, I think that does a big part of it. The other one too that I think is critical, and this is the part that that you struck to with like, hey, we're trying. Um. When you set up certain rules and standards for conduct, behavior, honesty, and things like that, and you fall short of it, so you've established what the rules are, and you've pointed to this as the standard, but now you've fallen short of it, and they respectfully, if they're disrespectful, I'm sorry, I don't don't brook disrespect because the world doesn't brook disrespect, and my kids Mm -hmm. need to understand that. But again, I'll remember a time when my oldest daughter came to me. And she thought I had handled something wrong. And it turns out she was dead on right. She was right and I was wrong. And and I sat there and I said, sweetheart, um, first of all, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention. You are right. Uh, I'm wrong. And I'm going to go correct that. And and it had to do with something, an interaction I had with her her younger brother and sister. I got mad at him because they made a mess in the kitchen. Turns out they were making me something. And But she, <laughs> in, in that moment, in that moment, what it was is that um, I, I looked at it, thank God, because there's been other moments where I've been like, I'm in charge here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in that moment, I in that moment, I looked at it as um, I've taught my daughter that there's a standard for right and wrong. I'm also the authority figure in this house. So what just happened was my daughter realized that the authority figure had had broken a rule, had broken a standard, and now she had the courage to come to an authority figure and respectfully ask about it and inform me about it. If I, if I just go after her right now, what I've taught her is the rules are arbitrary. The standards are arbitrary. And all that matters is my authority because I have the ability to impose it. Well, I sure as hell don't want to raise kids that do whatever authority figures tell them to, regardless of what is right and wrong. Exactly right. So in this moment, if I say you're right, I'm wrong. And, and I need to go correct this. I've told her that the rules are not arbitrary because they also apply to me. And I've also hopefully encouraged her to continue to display courage in challenging authority respectfully when it needs to be challenged. And I, I think those two things right there, really listening when, when you're, when all of your children, but specifically talking about daughters, really listening and being willing to go on kind of the journey to figure out what's bugging them and why. And the second part is, them understanding that you also believe that the same rules and standards that apply for them and for your son and the whole deal also apply for you with respect to, you know, standards of morality and conduct. Today, I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately. 
energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deepwell Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who want to join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. God, man, how in the hell did two combat veterans, infantry guys, start talking about, like, you know, <laughs> like the, the male version of, of the view kids. yeah the philosophy of raising <laughs> kids I, I i don't know how we got on this and I, I intended to come in here and talk about you know combat and stuff but i'm so fascinated by all this stuff i mean let me ask you a question then how important is it to say i'm sorry to your children when you get it wrong i i think so i think it's very important um I also think it's important to acknowledge being wrong Um, because it's one thing to be sorry. It's another thing to acknowledge that I I was, yeah, I was wrong on that. I was wrong on that. Um, Now, again, I can't, I can't stress this enough. It's still important, but that, that there has to be a level of respect maintained. Like I, I see this stuff in like, you know, TV shows or whatnot where, where kids are just yelling at their parents and like, I'll look over at my kids and be like, (laughs) <laughs> what would happen if you did that? Like, oh yeah. gosh, we'd be destroyed. <laughs> we'd, we'd have be that destroyed. <laughs> and and they, there was a, there was an interesting study that was conducted. I, I can't remember. I can't remember what's where where what, what university did it, but um, they let they let kids out to play right from like a recess or something like that. When there was no fence, the kids all huddled together and they didn't stray too far, right? They kind of they kind of stayed closer together. When they went out to play in an area where there was a fence, they expanded out and they they explored more. And and it goes to show that that kids are actually looking for boundaries, um, and they want to know that they're good boundaries and that they're not arbitrary. They're there for a reason and they're there for their protection because someone loves them and, and is caring for them. And as the guardians of those boundaries, we are owed a level of respect. Um. But if you want your kids to understand that the reason why the boundary exists is not because I, as the dictator of the family, decided that they exist, but they exist because they're true and they're good and they're noble, well, then if there's a situation where you violate the boundaries and they respectfully call you on it, I think it's important to be like, I'm, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. Or, or you know, you, you were correct. Um because again, I, I don't want my kids, I, I don't want my kids to be like blind lemmings following whatever, because here's the problem. When your kids leave their house, you're not the primary authority figure anymore. Exactly. It's right. the college professor. It's the boss. It, it's whoever else it is. And, it, and if they haven't left your house convinced that there's such a thing as right and wrong, and these are the standards, then it's whatever the next authority figure tells them. And I guarantee that next authority figure isn't going to care about them as much as you do. God, Nick. I mean- so you've clearly thought a lot about being a, a father. And I, I, I suppose, I, and I don't suppose, I know goes hand in hand with being a good husband um, and working on your relationship. And I'm sure you've given a fair amount of thought to that. But where does this come from in you? I mean, because you, you told me earlier that you came from a divorced home. And, you know, I, my parents stayed together uh, and I had, my parents were amazing. I love them to this day. 
Um, they stayed together, but obviously I, I, I went through a divorce. wasn't in the cards for me. wasn't anything that I, I planned for. People who are watch and subscribe to my show know that I had the OJ Simpson trial of divorce trials. So yeah, like yeah. people, people know. Um, but it's somewhere along the way. Did you make a choice? I mean, Nick, were you? Did you make a choice? Like, I don't want this life for my kids. Um, and I'm going to focus on what it means to be a good husband and a good father. I, I think um, so. Again, my parents got divorced, remarried. My mom got married again, then got divorced again um, while I was at home. And then my dad got separated again. And then, um, excuse me, Tina's parents got divorced and remarried. So both of us kind of came from this kind of tumultuous environment where. Wow. Uh, we, we still had, we still had like effective parents. Right. But it, it certainly mm -hmm. wasn't in the ideal situation. Did they get along? And, I mean, were they, were they cordial yeah. to one another? Yeah, they, they were. I mean, the, the greatest gift that my mom and dad gave to me after they got divorced was not using me or my brother as pawns in battles between them. Hmm, um, that's amazing. My mom, my mom actively worked to make sure that we had a good relationship with our father, our father actively worked to make sure that we loved and respected our mother. Um, and, and that was, that was crucial, right? That was crucial. Um, the, the other, so I, I think both of our experience, my wife's and I experience with both like, like we're not doing this. The other thing too, is like our, our faith is very, very important to us. This is not something that, you know, we just, you know, it, it's not cultural Christianity in the sense that, okay, well, yeah, Hey, we're, we're, predominantly Christian. So we are too. It's like, no, it, it meant something to us. And, and when we, uh, when we first sat down, when we were dating, cause we got married, we got married at 19 and 20. Um, wow. we sat down, I remember when we were dating and, and just started talking about what our expectations were for marriage. Like what were her expectations of me? What were my expectations of her? And so when we found ourselves, you know, married, um, I mean, there was totally you know, ups and downs and, and, fights and disagreements and the whole deal. But we, we did have a baseline on what our, what our standards were. And um, we had a baseline of conduct for how we interacted with each other. And there was, there were certain rules that, that really helped us out with that. And then one of the things that really struck me was this idea that my, my kids are first learning. My, my kids first introduction to marriage is, is going to be my wife's and I, our interaction. So my son is learning how to treat and interact with his wife. My daughter is learning what her expectations are for a healthy relationship. And, and so that, that caused me to, to start thinking about these, these questions and, and whatnot. Um, and then just, just recognizing, I mean, the role we play as men in society right now is totally under attack. The role we play as men, the role we play as husbands, the role we play as fathers. And and I if there's anything, if there's any message I would give to, you know, any young man out there, a man in general out there, is take what culture is throwing at you right now and just trash bin it. Absolute garbage. Uh we are we are made, we are made, designed to be strong, to be confident, to be competent, to be capable. We we are designed to provide, we are designed to protect. And you are going to find an enormous sense of meaning and purpose in fulfilling those roles, regardless of what the latest trend out of Cal Berkeley is. Like, I, I couldn't care less what popular culture tells me about what my responsibilities are as a man. I'd, I'd much rather go to scripture and to thousands of years of human history that has demonstrated that when men step into our roles and we assume them and we and we operate in them with honor and integrity and nobility and, and, and yeah, to a certain degree, a certain element of tenderness toward our wife and toward our children, that is the building block of everything else. You want to solve most of the problems going on in this country right now. It's not going to be an election cycle. It is going to be strong men once again, reassuming and taking pride in the position that they have as husbands and fathers. I could, I, I totally agree. And, and to your point about the role of, of what it means to be a man. Uh, under assault in this country. I mean, the data backs it up, too. If you look at the, even the Census Bureau from 2019, again, having gone through a contentious custody fight and a divorce myself, which, by the way, my kids didn't ask for that. They don't deserve, deserve to be in the middle of that. We hated that for them. Um, something like 80% of divorces or custody fights end up with the mother getting primary custody. 
80 yeah. percent and that's that's empirical data you know if you trust the data from the, this the u.s government in this day and age i don't know but but my point is is that even even in the family court system, which has the mission of best interests of the child first and foremost, I mean, clearly the best interests of, of the child are having a loving mother and father involved in their life as much as humanly possible. But rarely is that ever the case. And of course, you know, I'm speaking from a deeply personal experience, uh, yeah. uh, like with me and my family, but it, kids in homes without a permanent father presence across the board do consistently worse in almost every aspect of society without the structure of a, of a father they they leave the home they're more they're 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 not as likely to graduate from college they're more likely to be depressed they're more likely to smoke and drink heavily they're more likely to do drugs the suicide rate uh, for children without a permanent father presence or, or male presence there and and look I, I'm not I'm not this is nothing against mothers um I guess what what I'm building to is that so much of this anti-narrative this anti-male narrative has come from you know this movement that that women don't need men you know that that men are successful at the expense of women and vice versa and 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 this 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 discourse pits men against women in a way that I just don't think is healthy because faith is very important to me too. And I, I happen to believe that we are created in God's image to lift one another up. Like I, what I need from my wife, I, I, I need, it's truly a need. I don't have it. And she brings that into our relationship and elevates me as a man. She makes me a better person and I need it. And, and I'm, I suppose I'm reminded of all this, Nick, because it's, Somehow I came across a view segment where they were saying like these ladies were saying how they didn't need men, you know, like, like, and I just thought to myself, well, what a cavalier statement, number one, because I, I do need my wife. Like I told you, yeah. she makes me a better person in, in every way. And I, I'd like to think that I, I, I make her a better person, you know, um, but how, how do you talk about this with your daughters? Because I, I have got, you know. Most of the time in my house, I'm surrounded by women. Even all my pets are women, for God's sake. So, <laughs> so like, I, I want my, I want my daughters. I mean, my wife is a freaking warrior. If she were alive during Viking times, she would be a shield maiden. I mean, yeah. she's strong and she's fierce, and I want that. I want that for my daughters as well. But in this environment, which you alluded to, where it's almost as like women or men are getting successful at the expense of women, which I don't believe is the case. How do you do that without, how do you create a strong, fierce, independent woman at the expense of men? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think that, I think it's about recognizing the proper, again, the proper roles that we all play within society. And and it's a lot easier for me when you have a biblical worldview, because I'm not operating off of my authority. This isn't, Hey, I conducted some research in a study and now this is the ideal. It's like, no, we, we have, we have what I believe is a divinely inspired guide that's providing some, some guide. And Oh, by the way, we do have thousands of years of human history that when it's properly applied, it, it seems to work really well for both parties. Hmm. Um, but yeah, because because to your point, I mean, here's the more controversial way to, to say this, right? I, I don't understand the fourth wave feminist movement, which continually says that that women are, you know, in, in, empowered and can do anything and, and, you know, wonderful, but we can't actually define them. And oh, by the way, they've been living under the heel of a patriarchy for all of human civilization. So, so let me get this straight. If you've been living under a patriarchy for all of human civilization, but now you're, you're empowered at all, how did you manage to do that if you still believe you're living in a patriarchy? It's because there was a lot of men that don't want you to fail, that don't want you to be in a bad position. It's not because women are capable of achieving things on their own steam. It's because it turns out that when men and women live in a situation that is cooperative instead of competitive, we both do better. But this fantasy land where... You know, you have a, a very, I think, a smaller subset of women that want to believe that, well, we don't need men for anything. Well, that's really convenient as you're sitting in a building that was probably made by men with a police force that is predominantly composed of men, with the military protecting you that's prominently composed of men, with roads that were probably built by men, driving a car that was probably manufactured and built by a guy. Is this all because women can't do a lot of these things? No, and some women do, but the vast majority don't. They choose to do other things within society. Almost every teacher I had was a woman. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It, it like almost every right. nurse I've ever had was a woman. Um, and, and so I look at there, it's like, it, it, it has only been, it has only been lately that we we've tried to completely upend everything. And here's what I find the most confusing about modern feminism is that if a woman fully empowered with every legal right that she currently has within the United States, which is more legal rights than anywhere else in the world chooses to be a wife and a mother chooses to be someone that manages the home, maybe educates the kid, maybe homeschools the kids and stuff like that. And, and man, like truly manages that, that house, the maintenance, the upkeep, the whole deal. Um, like in, in our family, that means like we got, you know, gardens and animals and the whole deal. Like there's, there's a lot of unbelievable amounts of work. Unbelievable. Yeah. How are they treated by feminists? Are they treated by feminists as, oh yeah, they're not treated like, oh wow, you know what, I'm so glad that you found a place that makes you happy, that gives you fulfillment and purpose, and that you're doing a, and you're doing an excellent job of it. That's never the standard. No, the standard is, why aren't you doing something that a man would have done 30 years ago? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing a man's role? How is it that fourth wave feminism has, has adopted this philosophy that a woman is only fully living up to her potential? If she's doing something that feminists perceive as having been male dominated previously, right? That's the, that's the only thing they give any grace to. And, and I don't get that. I take that back. I do get that because I do believe that modern feminism is, is very hostile toward the traditional concept of marriage or the nuclear family. And it makes sense because feminism as a political movement needs lonely, single, angry activist women. That's the foot soldiers of their political power. And so they don't, they don't have, it's not like they have a, a great incentive to create an environment where like, okay, women, you have all kinds of opportunities now. And then they choose to be, Hey, I want to, I want to raise my kids and I want to do X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. We need you over here. We need you. We need you angry alone and mad at men because that's how we organize political power. Right? So, Again, it, suffragette feminists totally get it, right? We want equal protection for the law. We Completely. want to be able to participate in the political Completely. process. We don't want opportunities to be arbitrarily denied to us because we're women. Totally on board. Mm-hmm. Totally get it. Modern feminism, that is not the goal. In fact, modern, modern feminists despise a homemaker conservative woman far more than they do a man who then decides that they're going to present themselves as a woman and then win swimming races. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, so it, 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 it's it, the it's so many of of their world view. Like much of their world view is just contradictory, and it's like you don't get to have these things both ways. Yet, like rarely are they called out because you know, frankly, you're not even allowed to say some of this stuff anymore. I mean, you know, without being looked down upon, I mean, like, you know, I'm sure there will be some people in my comments talking about how we're misogynists and stuff like that, which is just, frankly, I'd be disappointed if there were. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I suppose you're, I suppose you're right about that. I mean, I mean, do you're, so how confident are you that your children are going to leave the home and when they are exposed to these other uh, influential figures in their life, college professors, bosses, whatever, how confident are you that they're going to, you know, have this worldview that continues to be like similar as yours because frankly nick it is i'm amazed i mean not that i didn't think that you were capable of of this level of depth of thinking like don't take it like that i just mean like it's it's like you showed up thought i was going to be eating crayons over here (laughs) maybe a little bit i mean because the red only because i only because i ate them prior to the show um but i just you know I guess very rarely do I meet someone who is in, you know, infantry, special forces type guy who is in the same place in his life, raising kids, fully committed to the process, trying to figure it out, trying to take all of these experiences in the military, which looking back are some of the best, most formative years of my life, just in terms of developing me as a young man, and as a leader and as a soldier, and then trying to figure out how you take all of that wisdom and apply it to being a father. Um, and a good husband, it's just a, it's a nonstop 24 hours a day, seven days a week thing for me. And you've clearly spent so much time on this and you, and, and like when you have a bit from the biblical worldview of, of the nuclear family to standards that everyone in your family seems 
to clearly understand. So you've got this structure and rules that people get. How, how confident are you that when your kids leave the nest, that they're going to have that same or at least similar worldview? So I, I would say I'm confident, but I'm not arrogant about it. Right? So yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm confident in the sense that I, I think we continue to do, I think we continue to work through the process to make sure that they, they feel, they feel adequately equipped. So to give you an idea, both of, um, both of my daughters, uh, love theater. Uh, so they do plays and my, my oldest daughter has been doing plays for gosh, like seven years now. Um, so as you can imagine, the, the theater world, is clearly known as being a bastion of conservative thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. She, she, she regular finds herself because of, because of the, the work that she does, because of the, the work that she does within theater and whatnot. She constantly finds herself in a situation where she's interacting with people that have a worldview that in many cases diametrically opposed to hers. And when she first started doing this and whatnot, we would come home and like, we'd, we'd talk about her. She would, she'd go through things and talk with the, uh, talk about it with me. Now, again, we homeschooled. Um, now, a lot of people think that if you homeschool, that means you don't expose your kids to anything outside of the, you know, the, the four walls of your house. That's, that couldn't be further from the truth. But what it did mean is that we were already seen as her educators. So she, it, it wasn't confusing at all to come out and ask us questions about philosophy or theology or history or, or anything like that. And, and we, we included them in conversations when we have debates. In fact, whenever I'd hear one of my kids, especially when they were younger, whenever I would hear them regurgitate something that they had heard me say about <laughs> politics or I'd immediately challenge them on it. Be like, why do you think that? Well, you know, because no, no, no. Why, why do you think that? Well, I heard you say it. That doesn't that. Okay. You know why I think it. Why do you think it? That's what I want to know. Cause that's what you're going to get asked because again, I, I don't want to train them to just regurgitate the things that I, I think a lot of times that we, what is very easy to slip into and as a parent is that rather than teaching them critical thinking and, and a comprehensive and, and, you know, intellectually sustainable worldview, what we actually do is we teach them an incentive structure. So at the top of that incentive structure is the authority figure, us. And these are the things you do that make us happy. And these are the things that you do that make us mad. If you do the happy things, you get rewarded. You don't got to understand why you're doing the happy things. The only reason what you have to understand is I get rewarded if I do the things that, you know, makes them happy. Mm -hmm. Well, again, you go off to college and now all of a sudden, not only has the authority figure changed, but the incentive structure has changed. So it was really important for us, for our kids to understand that we believe this because it's true. Here's the reasons why we think it's true. Here's the reasons why we think that if you follow the truth, it will actually provide benefits to you and your life with respect to your relationships, with respect to your job, with respect to, you know, whatever else you do in life in just basic interaction with people. And then we, we challenged it. We, we had those moments where we went back and forth and we didn't protect them from going into an environments where they would be challenged. And what they ended up doing is they ended up developing this process where they would interact and they would, they would defend what they believe to people and they would find different ways to do it to be more effective. And then they would come home and talk about it with us because it was exciting. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got in this conversation at theater and we talked <laughs> about X, Y, and Z and everybody was saying this. And you know, instead of, instead of responding right away, I said, we know, I think that's interesting, but what do you think about this? And I got him to look at it from a different perspective. And then I found out that three other people actually agreed with me. So they got excited about that because they, they experienced, like in the military, right? Confidence targets, right? When you're, when you're training up and you're operating with, with your Iraqis or your Afghan, Afghanis or whatever it is, and, and you've got like a, a unit that isn't well-trained, you don't immediately throw them at a complex multi-story hostage rescue target, right? Mm -hmm. You go, you go with the recon, right? Like you do something right. easy <laughs> that they can accomplish, get some success and then start to feel, and then they want to learn more. And then they're excited about this process. Um, and so th thus far I can say that, you know, again, my oldest daughter's 20. She's been in a lot of environments where her worldview was challenged on a regular basis and it doesn't phase her. Um, in fact, what she found was that a lot of her most, like what you might consider like very woke, very liberal, progressive friends, she was the one they all came to when they wanted sound advice. Interesting. When, when That's they just wanted to hear you go girl, slay queen, the whole, they can, they can go to anybody for that. Right? You they just can go said to anybody. slay queen. My yeah. daughter just, my daughter just said that two hours ago. I'm yeah. like, slay, slay queen. You did that. This is how I know you've got, this is how you know you've got girls. This is how but I know when, you got girls. 
but when they wanted somebody who they know cared about them, because she was always very, very good at making sure people knew that she cared about them. This is a this is a tougher part for me, right? Because we're more kick down the door, flash bang the room, and I'll show you how yes. much I care. You know, three round burst. But yes, um, <laughs> she she got very good at understanding the environment that she was in was heavily emotional. You know, by 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 the nature of the environment, and so rather than just try to crush people with her her ability to argue, she really focused on making sure people understood that she cared about them and that she wanted the best for them. And then when she gave advice, it was based off of what she generally thought was the best advice for them, not whatever popular culture was telling or reinforcing. And so she created this established relationship with her friends where she was the go-to person if they wanted the hard truth. And once she had worked herself into that role, it was, she was providing value to other people and it was appreciated um, not to mention the fact that she also feels, you know, she doesn't have mom and dad's faith. She has hers, right? That's her relationship with God. Um, we we might have we might have showed her the you know that path, but she had ultimately they have to choose it. Just like your son, ultimately we prepare them for manhood. They choose whether or not they're going to enter it. So, yeah. I mean, so how concerned are you? about the redefining of words, because when you're talking about truth, you know, we base things in truth. A part of me feels like that word has lost all meaning. And I, frankly, again, I think that's I think that's deliberate um, yeah. to erode people's sense of north south, like what's crazy and what's not, you know, and because because everything in this world feels completely upside down. You know, yeah. to when you can't if you can't even define what what a woman is, like we've got we've got real problems. And so we, how we just, afraid are you of that? How afraid? Because, I mean, the, that is what you know, not to make this super political, but the left, they are experts at taking words and deconstructing them and yeah. and, fr- and giving them new meaning. We just did a two-hour podcast on postmodernism and deconstructionism. I, I, so we talked about postmodernism in grad school, and I was the only conservative. I was in a PhD program, but I was the only conservative in all four years of the program. And yeah. these people were obsessed with postmodernism and not even realizing how just dangerous it is if that's the only worldview that through which you see the world. Yeah. Well, because postmodernism, the, the way I describe it is it, it's like a universal solvent. Where do you keep it? Postmodernism doesn't build anything. It just critiques what already exists. Well, if, if your only role in life is to critique that which, ex- which exists against some sort of utopian reality that will never exist, will never- <laughs> well, your job's pretty easy. You just can't build yeah. anything from that. The, the, the dumbest thing, <laughs> sorry, and this sounds very just kind of flippant and pejorative, but it's the way I feel about it. Okay, oh, let me start with this. The thing that deconstructionism and postmodernism got right was that we should challenge accepted narratives, right? And and if you're questioning that at all, think of about how you felt as a conservative when the government decided to come in and close down your business and tell you to wear things and tell you to do things and everything else because they were the science. That is a narrative you should challenge. That is a narrative that you should attempt to deconstruct in order to determine whether or not the people that fostered that narrative have your best interest in mind, have done the accurate research, and have made a logically and intellectually consistent argument, or if they're potentially, <clears throat> excuse me, they're potentially motivated by other things. Right? Perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. Where postmodernism like totally fails is that rather than just issue like strong critiques based off of a, a little bit of reasonable skepticism, they then move on to this idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. Okay, is that true? Like really, this is the part that I, don't, I this is the part where if, when you look at postmodernism as an intellectual exercise, <clears throat> it is rank absurdity. There's no such thing as truth. Okay. Is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Yes. Okay. I guess there is such a thing as truth. Wait, wait, no. I mean, no. Oh, so there, you, what you just said was wrong and I don't got to believe it. Uh, I don't know. Is it true that you don't know? Right. This is so easy to dismantle because it's based off of a fundamental premise that is self-defeating. It doesn't make sense on its face. And nobody, by the way, the, the most dedicated postmodernist on the planet never lived a single day in their life actually believing in postmodernism because they still got up in the morning. They still went out to their car. They still turned the key fully (laughs) expecting 
fully expecting that if they walked the way they did yesterday, if they turned the key the way they did yesterday, if they drove the same route, the building would still be there. They would go in and the people they still work. In fact, the same jackasses that actually wrote down on paper I love this. This is a Jacques Derrida thing. They wrote down this idea that language has no meaning outside of itself and that the written word is nothing more than an attempt for the author to impose their worldview on you. So you should be very careful of it. Really, Jacques, does that apply to the thing you just wrote or is that everybody else? (laughs) Yeah, Derridian philosophy is is it, it it's. Again, it's a worldview that is wholly inconsistent with actually living in the world and having real life existential experiences. I, I, here's, here's what I couldn't, like when I was living through COVID where they locked down, closed small business, loved ones have to die alone. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't hold your newborn baby because, you know, lockdown and yeah. questioning narratives. The very people who were pushing the trust the science narrative were likely the grad students that were the postmodernists. So yeah. wrap your mind around that one. Well, that's and I I think to your point, it's because it isn't about coming up with a coherent set of values or, or even intellectual convictions, which you can live by. It is about the quest for power. Right. That's postmodernism. Exactly right. Postmodernism is not used to build anything. Postmodernism is a weapon. It is a tool of aggression against every other competing worldview out there, because all it is is this form of like rank skepticism, which says, I'm going to deconstruct everything you say, because I have a right to say that you're an oppressor and this is an oppressed. And therefore you using logic, reason, science, or any of those other things in order to try to come to a rational conclusion is just you using a tool of the patriarchy to oppress people. Now, now here's what I found. It's so unbelievably insulting and intellectually lazy. It it just is so frustrating. But it it provides one major value proposition to the people that apply it. It absolves them of responsibility to either come up with something better or to actually do a strong historical comparative comparison between the different systems that we're actually supposed to be analyzing. Right. If all I have to do is sit here and lob over, you know, bombs at you, but I don't have to actually provide any sort of insight into how things should be run. Well, that's a great position to have. I mean, you're just the, you're just the skeptic. That's all you are. You're, you're the you know, you're sitting on the skeptic. You're not responsible for anything except causing <laughs> it's, problems. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's easy to be it's easy to be the critic or the skeptic without providing any real recommendations how to build anything in the first place. You know, well, and, and, and also and also it doesn't in reality. But theoretically, if, if you're living in a relatively safe, prosperous and secure times like most Americans are, most Americans are. Well, now you've just been told that all of the rules that, that govern society with respect to what is a man? What is a woman? Do we have actual roles in society? What is truth? What is good? What is bad? What, what are, what are behaviors which are positive and healthy and which ones are hedonistic and destructive? You don't got to listen to any of that anymore. You, you can just, you can be as hedonistic as you want to be. You can go out there and do whatever you want, experiment with whatever you want. And anybody that has the audacity to suggest to you, Hey, that might not be a good idea. Well, now not only are they wrong, they're upholding tools of the patriarchy. And, and so it provides this, this moral clearance to do a whole bunch of things and to recommend things that are absolutely self-destructive. And the moment the self-destructive activity leads to bad results, they get to blame everybody but themselves. That can and, be and really, really enticing. War, it's, it's enticing. I just I do think that it's it's also extraordinarily dangerous in a functioning society because it lacks postmodernists also lack a, a very real sense of moral clarity. And I had my first experience of this when I came back from Afghanistan, Nick, where I was like I was talking about the what they do to children in that country and how they live and how barbaric they are. And I'm like, our life is better like Western society and what we built here is better than what they have there. Like women have no rights. And and to the postmodernists who I was debating in grad school at the time, it's like, no, 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 no. That their culture's just different. They believe different things than you. You know, it's just this whole concept of moral relativism erodes people's ability, especially impressionable children, you know, because we've been talking about raising kids, especially impressionable children about what is good and what is evil. And 
I I am not afraid to tell my children that, hey, the American way of life, our way of life, while not perfect, and we, we are constantly trying to get better and refine our society and be better, it's better than most other places. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, the, the postmodernists can't do that. They can't do that because everything's no. relative. Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, it's all relative until they don't want it to be. That, that's that's the other right. thing. Is like right. Every, yeah. Really, is, yeah. is like everything's relative except of course postmodernism. That's that's objectively <laughs> yeah. true. But that's um, exactly right. I, I I find it I find it interesting that every every argument I have ever had with a postmodernist, they will especially when they actually start to talk about how we should organize society, because that's always problematic for them. The moment they start the moment they start to create their own meta narrative, well then now all of a sudden they have a problem because they're not supposed to believe in meta narratives. But what I have found is that they they love logic, science, facts, and reason, provided they think they have a hard, uh, enough of it to support their argument. And so they will rely on all of those things in order to try to convince you of a particular course of action. The moment you counter that with superior evidence, logic, reason, argumentation, then they go back to being postmodernists again, right? Because everybody wants to use the tools as long as they think they're in their favor. It's just they have this backup called postmodernism where the moment all of a sudden their arguments fall flat, they just get to accuse you of being part of the oppressor class. Of course, you would say that you're a white heterosexual male. Yeah. <laughs> what, what does that have to do with the marginal tax rate? Well, uh, yeah. uh, you know, if I have to explain it to you, then, you know, and, yeah. and, and the, da- the real danger in that, the real danger in that long term is that if, if we can't agree to live, if we can't agree to live in peace with one another, which is to say, I'm not going to try to impose my will on you. You don't try to impose your will on me. And, and, we, and we will leave the government limited to handle just very, very few things that it needs to do. We're not going to make it expansive. But insofar as we do need to decide what the government is going to do, there needs to be a process that both both parties feel comfortable in being able to review evidence, review data, and then come to logical conclusions about courses of action, and then analyzing those courses of action in order to determine whether or not they achieve the desired outcomes. Postmodernism doesn't allow for that. So all we're left with with postmodernism, and this is going to sound a lot like critical theory and critical race theory and queer theory because it's all it's all connected. All the same. It's yeah, all connected. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all interconnected. Well, then what have you left me with? Well, you've left me with your lived experience is supposed to trump any sort of evidence I bring. And, and if I bring anything or if I try to if I try to find common ground where we can potentially come, I, I'm, I'm acting like an oppressor. What you've just told me is that there is no means for you and I to adjudicate differences or problems and that there's no means where we can just leave each other alone. You want me to do certain things. You want me to hand over certain rights. You want to be able to confiscate things that belong to me. And if I don't comply, you're going to come at me with a whole lot of force and coercion. And because we have no peaceful means for adjudicating this other than me surrendering, what does that leave me at? Because I'll tell you this much, I'm not surrendering. Mm -hmm. And that's the real problem with, with this philosophy that has just captured so many, so many people is that for, for all their talk of, of, you know, tolerance and acceptance and diversity, what it really leads to inevitably is violence as the only, no as the only final way to adjudicate problems. And I don't want that to take place. You, this is the thing. So many other people talk about this very cavalierly. You and I have been to war. We've seen what it looks like. We don't want it in our neighborhoods, Mm-mm. but by the same token, don't think for a second, we're going to roll over and, and allow this philosophy to, to predominate and take over and destroy what I agree with you has been the best demonstration of human history of what a peaceful, prosperous, and free society can actually look like. Mm-hmm. Man, Nick, I, I've had you for over an hour, and I, I don't want to go. I'm going to respect your time, but I would love to have you back to actually talk about your military service. <laughs> if that's okay <laughs> with you. I know I know that you're like very – I know you're very, very busy. I mean, but I went to grad school and we at part of like in a PhD and we studied a lot of existential phenomenology and all of these philosophers and I could never get on board with their worldview, not most of them anyway. And I just always thought it was a little bit crazy because they all lacked a distinct sense of structure, logic, reasoning, moral clarity. And at the end of the day, prioritize self over everything else. And what I've learned in my life is that you know, the pathway to a meaningful life is, is through service and, and acts of kindness to others. And, and a path, this is probably a 
simplistic, but the path, to, uh, the road to unhappiness is paved with entitlement thinking like the world somehow owes you something that, that you are here to take from other people. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. And I think so much of our culture, when you talked about, you know, so much of our culture, just discarding it, I completely agree. And I think for, for me anyway, the reason for that is, is to focus on me, 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 me. Yeah. And I loathe that. And I don't want my kids to, to believe in that trash either. So I, um, I can't believe that our conversation went this way, but I'm glad it did. I'm glad it did because I can guarantee you that there are lots of dads out there, some of whom are combat veterans, some of whom are police officers, firefighters, whatever, or just dads just trying to be better dads, trying to figure this out, that they're going to get something from this conversation. So, Nick, thank you. I really oh, my, appreciate my it. My pleasure, Sean. It's great to see you again, brother. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap with Nick Friedis. Uh Amazing show, amazing guy. I had no idea we were going to go down that path about talking about raising kids and what it's like to be, you know, combat veterans and raising daughters. It's really a strange thing taking those leadership lessons that you learn on the battlefield, being a non commissioned officer, an officer, and then applying them to being a father and a family uh, with small children. Boys or girls, it's challenging. I think for it, it's for fathers, it's it's all the more challenging when you, when you're raising daughters because you want to make sure that you're that you're there for them, that you're listening, that you're doing all the things necessary to set them up for success in life. So, unexpected path we we went down, but. I was glad to have that conversation with Nick. As usual, if you like the content that you just watched or you listened to, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. I'm exclusively on Rumble for the live stream. Um, I'm also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So like, subscribe, leave comments. Um, or if you're on Rumble, like the little like button, Rumble, like click the Rumble button because it helps us with all this algorithm stuff that I don't quite understand. Um, I'm also rolling out new t-shirts um, on officialshawnparnell.com uh, called the Battleground Apparel Company. You're looking at one of the shirts, never quit, never surrender. That's the mission of this podcast. And ultimately, I think it's it should be our mission in life. Um, but go grab a t-shirt if that's, the, if that's what you believe. Um, and as usual, thank you all for listening to this show and this podcast. God bless you all. And God bless this amazing country that we live in. Take care. Take care.